Hello everyone from me, my name's Diff, if I haven't met you before. Um, this is part two, as you can see from the slide up there, part two of what will be a three-part kind of mini-series. Uh, just on uh, questions about the sanctity of life. So last week, if you were here, we talked about abortion. Uh, and today we continue the uh, not in that enjoyable uh, conversation uh, because we're talking about hard things. Uh, but things that do need to be spoken about, we believe, here at the project. Uh, today we'll be talking about euthanasia. Just, um, <coughs> we're going to do questions at the end of this, uh, and uh, you're, willing, uh, you're very welcome to come and ask me a question if you'd like to, but uh, next week I've, I feel like I'll be kind of covering all the bases just a little bit again, reminding you of some stuff, and then talking about how to engage with these ideas out in society. So... Um, I figure next week might be a good time to be able to ask a, a variety of questions. So we'll have a Q&A time at the end of next week rather than at the end of this one. But, but if after the service you'd like to come and have a chat, obviously you're more than welcome to do that. So we'll get started. Um, as a way of introduction, I probably need to apologise, although to be honest it's not really an authentic apology because I don't really mean... <laughs> what I'm about to apologise for. I apologise because today we are going to talk a little bit about philosophy. And I know that that's not exactly what people are necessarily used to at church, and it's probably not what people usually come to church for. But nevertheless, it really is the only way, I think, to effectively do what I would like to do today and what I think needs to be done. So theology... Theology and philosophy... They go together. Well, theology really is the proper domain of the church, and even then there's plenty of churchgoers who would prefer it if churches didn't get too theological most of the time. But for the majority of human history, theology and philosophy went, uh, went hand in hand, at least for the first, couple of th or, or first thousand years of the church. Uh, almost these two were indistinguishable from each other. Most of the time, theologians were also philosophers, and most of the philosophy that was going on was philosophy about God. So my apology is because I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, uh, but I don't apologise because I do believe that we would all benefit, if not individuals, then at least the church as a whole, in knowing a little bit more about philosophy. The reason that I believe this will hopefully be made clear in this talk today, because today we discuss an issue that theology can and does say a lot about, but it's also an issue which has had its way paved throughout history. We're talking about euthanasia, and like abortion, this idea can only be found to be tenable in a world uh, in which its way has been forged for a long time. These kinds of ideas do not pop, out, pop up out of nowhere, and euthanasia has a long history, philosophically and theologically. I really like this quote by Goethe. Uh, Ignorant men raise questions that wise men answered a thousand years ago. It's a good quote. It's one for us to be thinking about. Sometimes we reject history to our own detriment. So we'll look to wisdom of the ages today in trying to answer these questions and talk about this and have this discussion. Because we're, we're covering a lot of territory, I really want to structure the talk as logically as possible and I thought it would be helpful to try to signpost where it is that we're going. So. There'll be three points today. The first one will be a theological point. We'll pick up where we left off last week, discussing the obsession uh, that humans have with choice and human will. And we'll plot that as a historical departure from dependence upon God. The second point will be the philosophical point. This departure from dependence has philosophical foundations that we've inherited without knowing it. We all live in a world that we have inherited without necessarily knowing what it is that has come before us and what it is that has created this world that we now live in. The ability to see and accept humans as the kinds of things that can and should choose to die or can have that choice made for them, that ability to see them like that is only possible as the result of a larger rejection of the rejection of the transcendent view of humanity. And this is partly due to something called nominalism, which we'll explain and talk about in a bit. But some theologians have singled out nominalism as one of the most damaging philosophical concepts for our contemporary culture. And you can see its stamp everywhere in our society. And even though few people today might know what it is or when it was, 
uh, because really it was a long time ago that nominalism started. It's important to recognize the philosophical foundations that we've inherited and the way that this has shaped our culture so that we can see our way around it. The third point, we will return again to theology because while points one and two may have helped us to uh, reject human will and choice as the preeminent things that we should consider when we make decisions, and then helped us to see why our culture is in this situation, these logical answers will not necessarily help with the intense felt reality of what euthanasia really is and what it really means for individuals. So we'll need to discuss the theology of suffering, to look into what suffering means and how we can respond to it. It's my hope that in considering these points today, you'll have some good foundations for conversations and more important, some good foundations for yourself in thinking about this very difficult and I think far more difficult and far less straightforward issue, uh, the topic of euthanasia. So to begin, perhaps the best question is to ask why I've cashed it out as more difficult and less straightforward than abortion. Well, when we consider the ground that we covered last week, we recognise that the foundational logical objection to be had against abortion is that it takes the life of someone without their consent. And we, re we didn't really talk about the consent issue as part of it last, year, uh, last week, but it's built into the argument that the unborn baby is not able to give consent for their life to be taken. But straight away, we can see how euthanasia is so different to that. Because this is done at least the kind of euthanasia that is the most palatable and therefore most likely to be put into legislation and argued for, this is done with the consent. In fact, at the request of the person who's going to die. So it's very, very different from abortion. Hopefully you can see that immediately. It's a clearly a very different case. And I want to state uh, from the beginning today that I personally find this a lot more difficult. I find it a lot more difficult to get my head around and to think through. I, f I really do think abortion's a no-brainer. I think the logic makes it clear. But euthanasia is more difficult. I can fully understand how and why people would believe that it is okay. But before we get into the details of these arguments, I want to pick up where we left off, consider what we saw at the end of last week as the big issue at the heart of the pro-choice thought. And it's all about choice. And I want to suggest again that this same thing, the same obsession, is at the heart of the euthanasia question. And this doesn't mean that anyone who is pro-euthanasia or who would consider it for themselves or for someone else is necessarily a choice-obsessed, free-willaholic who would consider themselves to be completely anti-God and going against God in the choices that they're making. It doesn't mean that any more than it means that for people who are pro-choice, who are pro-abortion. And that's the tricky thing. Because even though people might not actually be that, they might not actually think that way, they may not really be obsessed with choice and having their own way above God's way and above other people's way, it doesn't mean that that mechanism isn't happening deep down somewhere in their thinking. So I mentioned last week that what we really don't like, what is distasteful, for anyone who is in direct competition with God, for anyone who wants to be God and has set themselves up against Him, which I should add is all of us at different times in our lives, particularly if we are not on a process of redemption with Christ, what people who are setting themselves up to be God against God, what we don't like is limits, limitations, because limitations remind us that we are not God. And so we're obsessed with choice, with our will. There's a big philosophical movement that happened around 200 years ago where people got really stuck into highlighting human will as the thing that defines them. Nietzsche was big on this. These people could be called the will worshippers. They started to worship the human will as this determining factor. And not being able to choose when we die is a pretty big limit. It's a limitation. It's a choice that we don't have. And so it's understandable that for people who hate limitations, that this would be a limitation that we don't like. So let's go back to the earliest moment 
the earliest recorded moment of exaltation of choice. Back to the first recorded time when a human worshipped their will over God. And it's, of course, in the Garden of Eden. But you know what? As I was thinking about this, and I read it, I realised that this is not just about... Uh, it's not just the connection with choice that connects this with euthanasia, but this, this passage actually has far more to do with euthanasia than I first thought. It's more than just obsession with choice. It's more than seeing a rule and saying, no, I'm doing it my way. Have a think about it as I read it. Think about the language that's used here from Genesis 2 and 3. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. This highlights what I was talking about before, the desire to be God, but hopefully you can also see in it that some of this language speaks directly to the idea of euthanasia. What Adam and Eve did when they chose to eat this fruit was choose to die. God, who doesn't lie and who Adam knew intimately well, had told them that this would result in their death. And they made a choice. And in making that choice, they chose to die. This was, in some ways, the first euthanasia, the first human choice to die. Satan came to bring death. His goal was to bring death to humanity. And in tempting us to exalt our own will and choice above the laws of nature that God has put into place, He succeeds in bringing death into the world. So that's our first point. Theologically speaking, euthanasia starts badly in two ways. First, it exalts human choice above God's ways. And second, it reenacts the fall by choosing to bring death into the world. Now before we move on to point two, I want to turn for a moment to one of the most illuminating and brutal pieces of Scripture when it comes to diagnosing our culture. It's absolutely worth reading this one fairly often. It's Romans 1. You might be familiar with it. This isn't all of Romans 1. I've just cut a little bit out of the middle. For although they knew God, they did not honour Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is a brutal passage. And I think already you can start to see hints of the way that practices like euthanasia and abortion play into this passage and the way that people think. I don't know if we'll have time, but there is a person who classifies as an inventor of evil. There are people who are in the pro-euthanasia movement who literally invent devices to kill people so that people can kill themselves. 
All right, we'll return to this passage a couple more times throughout the morning. But to begin with, we can identify the fact that the exaltation of human will above God's law is exactly what this is talking about. It's turning away from worshipping the Creator and turning towards the created thing. In this case, turning towards humans and worshipping them. So theologically, that's happening. There's a turn towards worshipping humanity. But here is where, and we shouldn't be surprised to see this, the usual inconsistency of modern man comes into play. Because as we're about to see, our current culture is confused. It seems that it cannot decide if humanity is a God worthy of worship or an animal, and just an animal, and worthy to be treated no better than an animal. Because the big question that needs to be answered when talking about euthanasia, and it is a question that needs to be answered when talking about abortion, but even more obviously in euthanasia, is this question of what it is that makes a human valuable. So now we'll move to point two, in which we'll delve just a little bit, just shallowly into some philosophy. But to begin with, there's a story about abortion which will illustrate the particular issue at hand really well. As I hope I started to reveal last week, logic can help to put into uh, relief to make it clear that abortion doesn't really make much sense. However, all of that reasoning only works if human beings are valuable. There's a story I've heard a few times now, I think it's from Peter Kreeft, but it might be someone else, so I apologise if I'm wrong, but this guy gives a talk on abortion similar to the talk that I gave last week, spelling out the logic, talking about why ideas of cut-offs within the pregnancy don't really make much sense, saying there's really no justification for doing this. The talk goes well, he finishes up and he's packing up afterwards and a couple of ladies come out from the crowd and they talk to him about the talk and they say that they really liked it, they really enjoyed it and they thought the logic was impeccable, they couldn't fault it. He says, this is great, he's so, he's so happy that it had this impact. They say actually that he changed their mind, that they were uh, pro-choice, that they absolutely believed that uh, the unborn should be able to be killed uh, while they were still in the womb. And he's changed their mind. The way that he's changed their mind is that now they now believe that infanticide is okay, that killing babies is all right. So you can see that the logic that you can use to deconstruct and to pull apart pro-choice abortion arguments only works if the human is valuable. And all this guy proved to these people who didn't want to have to face maybe the reality of that was that, well, you're right, killing them inside and outside the womb doesn't make any sense, there's no difference. So rather than saying, let's not kill them at all, they just said, let's kill them afterwards. Well, at least it's logical, even though it's terrible. The logic doesn't make any sense, or at least it doesn't matter, because it doesn't deal at all with the question of whether or not humans have intrinsic worth. And what it is about humanity that makes it not okay to kill a human, but it is okay to kill a centipede, or a spider, or a chicken, or a cow. But there are people in the world who do not think that humans are any more valuable, necessarily, than any of the animals that I just mentioned. The same people actually advocate for the killing of babies at certain times for certain reasons. One of those people, you might have heard of him, is called Peter Singer. And he might just be our best-known Australian export in the philosophy field, which is a terrible thing. There's a lot to say about Peter Singer. He's an advocate for and coined the term speciesism, which is basically like racism, except that it's about species. He is against prejudice against other species. His point is that humans aren't that special and that we shouldn't go around acting like we're more valuable than other animals, of which we're just another type. Now, I'm not advocating that humans are so special they can go around torturing puppies or doing whatever we want, right? In fact, my family, we, we've become a rural family, we live on the land, and my kids have seen where meat comes from when I've killed and butchered pigs on the farm, and at least one of them has decided that they're not a big fan of meat anymore. And that is fine. In fact, I think it's great. It's not a problem, because the facts are that our society really does eat too much meat, I think, right? And most of it is in really unsustainable ways, 
and often connected to inhumane practices, which is a weird term to use for animals, right? Inhumane kind of means inhuman, but still, it, it, it is connected to practices which do not necessarily look after animals as well as they should be. I think we should all think better about the world that God made and our job within it that he gave us as caretakers of this garden. However, that does not mean at all that we are of equal value to pigs and sheep and cows. That goes without saying. You need to do some weird thinking. And I don't think anyone that says that really, well, maybe Singer does, but I don't think many people that say that really do believe it. Not deep down. Not in practice. The interesting thing you may have noticed is that this approach of making animals and humans equal in value actually seems to go against the previous goal of Romans 1, which was worshipping humans as gods. We're now at the point of dehumanising humans to be less than animals. But the speciesism thing that Singer is about, that's just the start with him. He is, of, he is also a huge advocate of euthanasia. And really, hopefully you can see why that makes complete sense. These two concepts go hand in hand. If humans are not special, if they are just another animal amongst all animals, if there is nothing transcendent about them, no immortal soul, no life after death, and therefore no purpose or meaning in life or suffering, then why not? Why not just die if you want to? Sometimes the smartest people in the world are the dumbest people in the world, and there's no doubt that Peter Singer is a very intelligent man. He's an emeritus professor at Princeton University in bioethics. He's a switched-on guy. I'm not at all saying that I would be able to beat him in a debate whatsoever. So these are some things that Peter Singer has identified as the key characteristics of what makes a human a real person, a human. These characteristics are rationality, autonomy, and self-consciousness. And from this, he has argued that therefore killing a newborn baby is never equivalent to killing a person, that is a being who wants to go on living. He actually doesn't disagree with the way that pro-life people talk about the beginning of life. He's quite okay with life beginning at conception or when the heart beats, because for him, that's not what matters. Biological life is not the determiner, the de determiner for Singer of human value. What humans need for him is rationality, autonomy and self-consciousness, and therefore, killing babies is okay. And of course, this also is what makes killing old people who are suffering from dementia or other debilitating diseases okay. For Singer, it would seem a person loses their value and their personhood when they have lost their ability to choose. So choice again seems to be at the heart of the issue. We are again exalting this ability of the human will, the ability to choose. Now, to be clear, this is not the kind of euthanasia that the majority of people are advocating for. This is not the kind of euthanasia that is now legal in Victoria. It's not the kind of euthanasia that will most likely uh, become legal in Queensland soon enough. But you can see the question still is, what makes a human valuable? Singer has made his decision. Therefore, he can have cutoffs. But this is a question that needs to be answered. When he's questioned and challenged about his apparent rejection of the sanctity of life that his views seem to suggest, he absolutely agrees. He believes the concept of the sanctity of life should be thrown out because it is outdated, unscientific and irrelevant. He argues that in its place we should care more about quality of life rather than sanctity of life. Just as an aside before we move on, you might remember that the last verse in Romans, it, it says... They not only do them, these evil things, but give approval to those who practice them. Well, Singer gets a lot of approval. He received the Order of Australia and was the 2014 Australian Humanist of the Year. This is Romans 1 in practice. Now, where does an idea like this come from? The question again is, what makes a human valuable? And in order to answer that question, we need to answer a more fundamental question, which is, what is a human? There really are only two answers to this question. Either humans are special, set apart in the animal kingdom because we have something else, and it's not just intelligence and the capacity to reason, but a spiritual element, a soul. Either we are that, or... We're just the most highly evolved animals, but still just animals, just mere matter, nothing more than flesh and bone. 
Of course, that second option is exactly what the majority of people would believe today. Or at least what Darwinian evolution would have us think. Darwinism, when it's taken to its final conclusion, really has nothing at all to offer in argument against euthanasia. Or even, for that matter, abortion. But it's important to remember that it also doesn't have anything to say against the Holocaust. It's just survival of the fittest. It's an interesting thing that so many people who sign up for survival of the fittest, Darwinian evolution, also have problems with when survival of the fittest happens in humanity. If we are just animals, then we are just a part of that evolutionary process. Now, there's something that this kind of thinking depends upon. It's a philosophical approach called nominalism. I'll try not to get this too complicated, but I genuinely believe that it's a really important thing that people understand these days. To put it as simply as possible, and in doing so to pretty much butcher all of the nuance of the term, but still to get it across, nominalism holds that general ideas, universals, are merely names, nomina, that's the Latin, so that's where nominalism comes from. The common nature which they assert is wholly subjective. Now, that might not mean much, but what it means in practice is that there is no such thing as humanness. There is no human essence that we can point to and say, that's what it means to be a human. Humanness, as it is, only exists in the real physical bodies of real humans. So there is no idea outside that actually exists in reality that defines humanity. The opposite of this approach is something called realism, and or more helpfully because realism's a word that's thrown around a lot, transcendental realism. And it holds that these transcendental realities really do exist, that there is something called humanness, just as there is something called beauty. Beauty exists, not just in beautiful objects, but in and of itself, beauty exists. And this is why it is incorrect to assert, as so many people do, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That is, and quite possibly a lot of you would think this and say it, and when you really reason down to it, you could say, well, this seems to make sense. But that is a nominalist approach. This is what I find valuable about philosophy. Sometimes we, we realise that we hold opinions and perspectives that we actually disagree with, if we get down to it, but we didn't even realise that we held them. Beauty in the eye of the beholder is a nominalist approach because it claims that beauty doesn't exist until a human sees it and names it. But it does. It's an objective reality, just like goodness and truth and other transcendental realities like humanness, what it means to be human. Now, I know you might be wondering how this matters and if it really is all that valuable, but hopefully I can explain. Most of the big names in philosophy are transcendental realists. Plato had his ideal forms, and they were really talking about the fact that the ideal forms of things really existed, and then they became real when they were instantiated in actual physical objects. Aristotle changed it up a little bit, but he was still a realist, uh, as were Augustine and Aquinas. It wasn't until the 1300s that someone you may have heard of, called William of Ockham, came along, and he thought through nominalism and he rejected transcendental realities. There's something called Occam's razor, which is a philosophical term for what it is that William of Occam did. And a couple of centuries later, Thomas Hobbes took it up again in a new and fresh way. Now, this rejection of transcendental realities did not mean that they were rejecting the idea of transcendence or the idea of essences. It doesn't say that there is, there is no humanness, they don't say that. It doesn't say that the answer to the question of what makes a human valuable is nothing. It simply says that the essence is only contained within the words that we use to describe it, and then in the physical instance of the actual thing. I may be losing you a little bit, so hopefully I can explain exactly <laughs> what I mean. This is a really important moment in philosophy, and in theology, and in history. Because this moment, when Occam took his razor to the transcendent, transcendent world, it meant that now it was words, human words, that gave essence and thus value to things. Now, any philosopher worth his salt would 
be able to pick apart the way that I've cashed this out and say I'm not representing these ideas fully, which is true. But they're big ideas, so I'm just trying to get them across as straightforward as possible. And the foundational parts of what I'm saying are absolutely true. This is a pivotal moment because the rejection of transcendental realities and the instantiation of human speech as having the power to determine or at least to reveal and in revealing create certain ideas and value was the beginning of humans being able to see themselves as gods. Because they now said there is no transcendental reality out there, I create transcendental reality and value with my words. This precipitated all major damaging philosophy that followed after the case. There's a philosopher called Roger Olson. He explains the problem like this. He summarizes a couple of thinkers, Balthazar and Lewis, about it, C.S. Lewis. He says, let me sum up Balthazar's and Lewis's claim about the catastrophe of nominalism. One way of putting it is that because of nominalism and its influence, the way that it trickled down into the fabric of Western culture, there is a widespread belief that beauty is only in the eye of the beholder, that truth is what works to solve problems, and goodness is culture-dependent. In other words, there are no real transcendental ideals. Truth, beauty, and goodness are only cultural creations and ultimately labels for individual perceptions. He goes on to say, I agree with Balthazar and Lewis that we can trace secularity, relativism, individualism, ultimately the loss of human dignity back to the influences of nominalism on culture and Christianity. It impacted Christianity in a major way. In other words, from where I sit and think, observing culture, nominalism is the ultimate poison of Western civilization that corrodes and erodes it. It lies at the top of the slippery slope down which we have slid into modern and now increasingly postmodern oblivion. So the answer, the way to get around that is to, and I'll talk about this much more next week, is to see things as really real to see beauty and truth and goodness as real things out there that we respond to, to see humanity as being valuable in and of itself rather than us being the determiners and the creators of value. And this is indeed the oblivion that we find ourselves in. My reason for taking this excursion into philosophy that I hope wasn't too painful was to demonstrate that we find ourselves in situations all of the time, situations that we don't know much about, and we take certain things for granted, we actually take things as being truth and wisdom, we assume that the inherited knowledge that we are given and the culture that we are given is based upon truth and wisdom. But this does not mean that they are. Bad ideas have bad consequences. And nominalism is a bad idea, and we are living in its bad consequences. This consequence is something that John, uh, Pope John Paul II called the culture of death. And I think this is a perfect name for what we see around ourselves so much today. Ours is a culture that has a strange fascination with death. If you think through what many of the major changes in public policy and cultural acceptance have been over the last hundred years, they often have some element of death around them. Even if the particular kind of death is not the death of some real living person, but just enacting something that will then, as a result, not bring about life. There are more and more moves towards this culture of death. Benjamin Weicker is an American philosopher who's written a book called The Architects of the Culture of Death. He tells the story of many of the influential figures throughout history that have created the way for our current culture. In the introduction to the book, he says this, says this is best understood as a sad vicious circle wherein the rejection of God causes an immediate tendency to lose the sense of man of his dignity and his life and in turn the systematic violation of the moral law especially in the serious matter of respect for human life and its dignity produces a kind of progressive darkening of the capacity to discern God's living and saving presence. One is reminded of the Augustinian dictum that sin is the punishment for sin. As recent developments in medical technology make clear, in rejecting God, we have not rejected the functions that are properly attributed to God, but merely taken, taken them as our own. It is now we who define good and evil, we who define birth, life and death, 
and we who shall create ourselves according to the image we happen to desire. The first tablet of our self-delivered Decalogue declares that we shall have no other gods besides ourselves, and the second, as a consequence, declares that each must love his own will above all else. In contrast, Weicker says this about the culture of life. It is precisely because of the infinite value of each human person, as revealed especially in the great drama of Jesus Christ, that truly Christian culture must be a culture of life, a culture that sees the protection of persons and their moral, intellectual and spiritual development as the defining goals of society. Whatever contradicts these goals can have no place in the culture of life. Now, I haven't spoken about euthanasia for a while, but I'm hoping that we can kind of put it together here. This is probably not the easiest place to argue from, and the most difficult thing about discussing euthanasia is how personal, specific and subjective it is. And when I say subjective, I mean it's not, not just that it's a theoretical argument. There is always a subject at the core, a real person who is experiencing real tragedy. But my hope is that perhaps for a moment we can be idealistic. And in contrasting these two perspectives, the culture of life and the culture of death, it can become clear which one should be pursued. It's a little like some of the arguments that we heard for abortion last week. Society often wants to argue from the exception and make it the rule. And while perhaps there may be some times that you personally believe that a person choosing their own death may be humane, we must stop and realise that we are not individuals. Every choice that we make has an impact on and contributes to shaping the world around us. It is the lie of individualism, the idea that my decisions are just my decisions. And what I do is my business and doesn't impact anybody else. This lie is the one which would tell us that euthanasia does not contribute to the degradation of society. So perhaps in the difficulties of tragic situations in which someone may consider euthanasia, one part of the solace, one part of meaning that is yet left in the world when all meaning looks like it's gone, is the knowledge that by rejecting euthanasia they are not contributing to the culture of death that they're not encouraging the world that Peter Singer wants. There is no such thing as individualism. We are all contributing to our culture all of the time. And as much as we might want to believe that our decisions have no impact, they do. They shape our families, they shape our friends, and they shape policy and laws. As difficult as living through slowly debilitating disease and old age may be, I personally don't believe that the dignity is in dying quickly and easily. The dignity is in remaining human, maintaining the value of humanity in the face of adversity, and reminding the world, our culture, that humanity is valuable beyond belief. But of course, this is incredibly difficult which leads us to the final point about suffering. And this is the hardest point. Up until now, I've discussed these issues as being the exaltation of human choice above God's law and then the dehumanisation of all humans due to nominalism, which kind of paved the way for the culture of death. But even saying all of that, the fact is that at the heart of every euthanasia question is the question of suffering. Now, there are a few things that can be said about this. Some of them are less emotional and compassionate than others. So I'll start with the least. The fact is, we are very, very lucky these days. We live in a time and in a society that has advanced so much that the majority of human suffering is able to be avoided. And I'm not just talking medically here either. There are things that were just par for the course until very recently in time that we don't even think about. I'm talking about dealing with your own waste. We just flush the toilet and it disappears. That's really new. It's amazing. And we probably don't even think about it that much. I'm talking about preparing your own food. There's, there's people out there that just go to restaurants every day. They just eat out all of the time. 
let alone preparing your own meat, coming face to face with a cow, killing it and butchering it. We have sanitized our life and we have the technology to make our life so much easier. And perhaps all of this is a good thing. I'm not saying even that it's a bad thing. But recently I've started to think that it might be a weird thing and it might do weird things to us. My family and I, as I said, we've gone rural. We actually live completely off-grid, my wife and kids. Completely off-grid, which means we rely on rain for water and the sun for electricity, which means we often don't have water and don't have electricity. We use candlelight. We don't have an oven. We try to grow our own vegetables. It doesn't rain much, though. I have, at times, had to have cold showers in the dark before going to work in the morning, in winter, in a shed. And when I tell these stories to people, the most often the question that they ask is, why? <laughs> Which is fair enough. What's the point? It's not like there's anything wrong with modern conveniences. And it's true, there's not. There's nothing wrong with modern conveniences. But there's a level of suffering, and really what I just detailed you could hardly call suffering. There's a level of suffering that was just once considered normal human activity. And it's good. It's actually good for us. It doesn't kill us. We bucket the water out of the bath in the morning to water the plants. And it's a good activity with the kids. We enjoy it. I'm not advocating that everybody should live like this, although it's pretty great. I'm simply saying that we've been surprised by how much the hard things that we weren't looking forward to are the things that we enjoy the most. Our modern life has been helped by technology and invention so much from the realms of basic conveniences all the way to incredible medical intervention, all to the point where now the smallest human suffering seems to be insufferable. Mowing the lawn? Get a ride on. Bored? Watch TV. Need to talk to someone? Just text them. And it's weird because these time-saving inventions, you all know, don't save your time. Not only that, but in taking the difficulty out of life, they also serve, a little bit I think, to take the story out of life. Stories require tension. So much of our life is avoiding tension. And we end up making everything flat and stale and repetitive. And we wonder why with the growing of the ease of technology, we have a growing of anxiety and depression and people being confused about the meaninglessness in their life. We don't know these days how to suffer well. We've become so dependent upon technology and human innovation that we have little need to turn to God in the midst of our trouble. It's only the big, big, big trouble. That's when we turn to God. And you know, because we haven't been turning to God all the other times in the little things, that can actually make turning to God in the big stuff really difficult because we haven't developed a habit of it. This is pretty brutal, but it's the truth. In the 15th and 16th century and before that, it was an expectation that one or more of your children would die. They just didn't have the medical ability to look after people. They didn't understand germ theory. This is one of my favourite pictures. Tells you a lot about me. It's the only picture I have on my desk at work framed, which is very strange. It's called the Dance Macabre. It's a 15th century woodcut that illustrates that death is everywhere and coming for everyone. That's not nice when I say it like that, right? That might seem pretty dark, but listen, back then it was common. And so people came to terms with it. And it didn't mean that it wasn't difficult or painful or tragic. Of course it was. But it didn't present people with the same existential, metaphysical, theological angst that it does now when we come up against suffering because they realised it was a part of life. Today we live in a world in which we have convinced ourselves that we are better than this. We are better than nature. And that therefore to suffer is wrong. To suffer is inhuman. Now, suffering is not part of God's plan. I'm not saying that it is. But I am saying that we have lost touch with how to suffer well. We don't like seeing suffering. We hardly see it at all. We've cotton-wooled ourselves. 
shutting the disabled, the sick, the elderly and the disturbed away in buildings down the street so that we can continue living as if suffering doesn't actually occur. But it does. And we all know that our life will contain some suffering. So it's interesting that sometimes we can put up with it. I think it's because we think to ourselves, this is going to end. This suffering has a use-by date. We will get joy again. And euthanasia seems to be that tragic, despairing moment, the point at which people say, there will be no more joy for me in this life. And I will bring no one else any more joy in this life. So what's the point? Firstly, that's not always the case. There are incredible stories of people who have been at that point in their life, become vegetative, become completely incapacitated or slowly going through a process of dying what we would consider to be a really inhumane death. My grandmother had dementia, was basically out of it for the last five years of her life that I can remember. That doesn't mean that seeing her didn't bring joy to people, even if she was completely out of it. It also doesn't mean that when she did die, that people, that her family was, was like angry about it. There was, that was the time and it was okay. And sometimes you might even find yourself saying, God, that person is ready, take them. But there's a big difference between doing that, allowing that to happen, and precipitating it and making it happen. The other thing is that we have to always remember that happiness, your happiness, my happiness, this is not what the main point of life is. That's not our main purpose for being here. And suffering well actually does way more than we realise. It's the same argument as, as can be said about abortion. There is a decline in the amount of people with, born with Down syndrome across the world because people are aborting them. But people with Down syndrome can bring incredible perspective and joy to people, help you to realise what life is really about, help you to be able to see people properly, to see that people aren't just there to be used and abused and to bring you stuff, but that people are there to be valued in and of themselves. And so it's when we reduce people down to thinking about them in certain ways that it is just about bringing happiness or having happiness that we can start to think about getting rid of them. The 6th century philosopher Boethius wrote this book, The Consolations of Philosophy. He wrote it from jail. He, was, he had the death penalty, he was going to die and he wrote a book about him talking to philosophy and philosophy making him feel good basically. And he said this about fortune, and when he says fortune, he really means the circumstances of life, both good and bad. He said, all fortune is good fortune, for it either rewards, disciplines, amends, or punishes, and so is either useful or just. That's a, probably a too glib and too direct way of basically saying, you know what, everything is good, but that's what the Bible tells us as well. All things work together for the good of those that love God and accord according to his purposes. His point stands, God is in control. And there are ways that we can approach life and we try to wrest that control away from God and we say, we know better, give it to us. And when we do this, it means that most of the time the particular goodness that could come from that bad situation is decreased that we don't get what God could give us through that situation because we think we know better. Running out of time, I don't think I've done a great job of discussing suffering today and the theology of suffering, but we did a series on it a, a, maybe two years ago. Those videos are up on the website. So if you are more interested in hearing about that, I absolutely recommend that you go and check it out. It's a huge issue. But... Too often, we do not have a theology of suffering. Too often, we have assumed that suffering will not come our way, and when it does, things fall apart. I encourage you to have a look. But the end fact is, 
we have a God who suffered. Jesus went through incredible suffering, unimaginable suffering. He sweat blood just thinking about it. And while his suffering didn't happen in order to completely remove all of ours on this earth, what it did do was to help our suffering have meaning. Taking life into our own hands, becoming the gods of nature, exalting choice and using technological prowess to go against the laws of reality, this is not what that meaning is intended to be. As difficult as it is, as painful as it is, God is with us. As difficult as it is, suffering well tells a story. It tells a much larger story than the individual. It tells the story of the value of humanity and the story of community, which is the story of reality. Will you pray with me? God, thank you that you are always with us in the midst of our pain and suffering. Thank you that you created us as infinitely valuable, so valuable that you went through more suffering than we can imagine in order to save us and to give us the true joy that we are purposed for. Thank you for your wisdom that comes from your word and pray that we would not be as those people in Romans darkened by our own foolish understanding and desire to be gods. I pray that you would comfort and bring wisdom and your truth to everyone here and everyone that they know who is going through difficult circumstances and that we would think deeply and clearly and engage well with the ideas that society is giving to us so that we could demonstrate your incredible love to all of those around us that we meet. Amen. Next week, we'll be uh, wrapping up the series and having some question and answer time. So if questions came up today that you'd like to discuss, um, bring them along next week and we'll have a chat about it then.